be prepared to be inspired, heartbroken, to laugh, and be motivated to action with stories, voices, and perspectives that rarely hit mainstream media. Hi, my name is Cheryl, host of the Global Citizenship and Equity podcast, where I feature leaders, practitioners, community leaders who are taking us forward in the 21st century. This podcast elevates the perspectives that shake up the status quo and allow us to feel into what it means to be human in a vulnerable society and on a very angry planet. There are culturally sanctioned murders all over the world. And in a global system where so many countries around the world continue to criminalize and subject LGBTQIA plus folks to levels of oppression and violence that are unspeakable, I want to say that there are also globally sanctioned suicides. On June 14th, 2020, Shortly after the culturally sanctioned murder of George Floyd, the international LGBTQIA community lost a significant Egyptian lesbian activist. Her name was Sarah Higazi. A couple of years back on September 22, 2017, Sarah Higazi attended a concert in Egypt. And we can see a beautiful picture of her waving a rainbow flag. The consequences of her doing that were horrific. She was arrested by her own country's system, tortured in prison for three months, and then exiled to Canada. What I'm about to share are a couple of details that have been reported online that are fairly graphic and may be triggering. When Sarah Higazi recounted her arrest in front of her family, she talks about being blindfolded and taken by a car to a location she did not know. And she was then tortured with electric shock and lost consciousness. She was psychologically threatened and physically assaulted as well. And when in prison, she was placed in solitary confinement for a period of time. The tortures she experienced included unspeakable tactics like sexual assaults, physical assaults, psychological torture. Needless to say, the impact of all of these events on her psyche resulted in very severe post-traumatic stress disorder, a collection of symptoms that she was open about even in her final weeks. This episode is a conversation with four activists who identify as SWANA LGBTQIA plus advocates who recently put out a petition or open letter breaking down the numerous global factors that led up to Sarah's 
globally sanctioned suicide. These four brave individuals, for the sake of their safety, have chosen to be more private about their identities, which I respect. We break down these transnational issues that were involved in Sarah Higazi's life, legacy, and death. What I really hope to bring with this episode is some light around the invisibility that so many LGBTQIA asylum seekers face in the West. August 2nd, 2017, a paragraph she wrote, it says, which means before suicide. There's a sentence that caught my eye where she says, الانتحار هي جريمة قتل قام بها أناس لن يدانوا في يوم ما مجتمع كامل شارك في الجريمة is a crime of murder committed by some people who are never going to be condemned in any day in the future a whole society participated in such a crime. Sarah had a purity and openness and straightforwardness that was like very rare and special. And like most of our time together was was at rallies and protests. And I would see her at like whatever rally you could imagine. Um, uh, Palestine, uh, Black Lives Matter, um, queer rights, migrant rights, homeless, just, she just had like the, just the biggest heart I ever saw in someone. And like, yeah, she just left a mark. I just saw how much she struggles, how much it was, the weight of everything she went through was in prison, the torture she went through and then just really missing her country and her family. Still, more than a year later, I just feel in awe how much she just endured and how strong she was. Just... Yeah, like, I just haven't met anyone like her before or since. She was just really special and pure and innocent. I'm really heartbroken she's gone. Well, yeah, sorry. (laughs) When I heard the news of such an activist ending her life um, in the way that she did and the story behind it, right? The story of feeling punished by your own country, the, the suffering she went through just for being who she was, for speaking up, for flying a rainbow flag. That rejection and that pain and that sense of exclusion is indescribable and it's, a, it's, a, it's an experience that so many queer people experience in this world. And so this, for me, is such an important story to tell and to hear from all of you that are activists and who are continuing to advocate for this legacy. It's so important for me to have you here with me on this podcast. I know that the Swana Arab region, it's huge. It's a huge diaspora. There's lots of diversity there. But I'm wondering if you can tell me and share with me a little bit more about 
a general sense of what the LGBTQIA movements are like there. And I know some of you have been away from home for some time, but from your understanding, what is it like? What is the impact of law and culture and these movements? How are they doing in in the region? I I can go ahead and kind of start to attempt to answer uh, that particular question, but like you said, there isn't there isn't one situation that can really cover cover all of it. But the one theme that all of us, uh, all of the Swana people, will probably say is that we're all still searching for a little bit of dignity in being able to talk about ourselves. So we have a word in Arabic we we call it karama, and it, and it it really translates to to dignity, to self worth, to being able to stand up and just just kind of be yourself. And I think universally in the Swana region, uh, regardless of the laws, so some countries criminalize homosexuality, others don't. Sometimes it's more family pressure than societal pressure. Sometimes in the case of it's it's an actual state policy, regardless of, of the laws itself. So even, even when the law does not criminalize homosexuality, there's no protection from official discrimination, from torture, from abuse, or from the abuse that you can get from your fellow citizens. So the in terms of the intersection of it is the the laws in a lot of our Swana countries do not necessarily reflect the will of the people, international treaties, or any kind of protection for the rights of uh, minorities or, or even individual rights. And what we all kind of struggle with is this, this sense of having to prove ourselves as people who exist and somebody who are citizens trying to kind of stand up for, for basic rights, let, let alone these rights. And part of the challenges that we have is by speaking up, everybody's saying, hey, we have, we have so many other priorities related to to our rights just to be able to speak, to assemble, to have jobs that, you know, focusing on specific sexual minority rights or gender rights are not necessarily a priority. We face that both in the Swana region and in the diaspora when we try to speak about it in the communities across the board. That said, there is not a dearth of movement. I think almost in every region of the Arab world, the wider Swana world, and the diaspora, there are individuals that are pushing the conversation, pushing the envelope, and lobbying for rights to try and make make a difference. This is Miriam. As Basim mentioned, there, it's difficult to talk about the Swana region because it's just it's it's enormous. And as you mentioned, Cheryl, some of us have been away for many years, some of us for fewer years, but there's there's certainly physical distance there. I'll talk about Egypt and, and just say that homosexuality, homosexuality is not officially illegal. There's no language saying if you have sex this way, you can be criminalized. But there are sort of like more general laws having to do with like morality and whatever that, that can kind of be a catch-all that the government or concerned citizens can use to further marginalize queer people. And in terms of just historically how the queer community, as I understand it, has been dealt with in Egypt is it's kind of, for the most part, right there's like queer life it's 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 happening and then there will be these like moments of rupture where for whatever reason the government does a huge crackdown um and then that sort of like takes over the 
public consciousness for a while. Because there are very few spaces to have any type of open conversation about queerness, like kind of societal opinion on it is stuck, right? Like you need discourse, like in this country, things only changed when there was a lot of like, there was a huge public art outcry and protests and people dying and all of those things. And that actually is, is what resulted in um, queer life being marginally easier here was because of a lot of that struggle. And then when you talk about a country like Egypt, where like, we have Sarah's example where she raised a flag and look what happened. Right. And so it's, there isn't, there isn't enough happening in a public sphere that's accessible to everybody for, for the conversation to like really progress. The last time that there was any sort of crackdown that was this big was the queen boat case. I think it happened in 2001. I remember that case, which a lot of Egyptian gay Egyptian men hanging out at a Nile boat that was a known gay dance club, cruising spot, all of that, um, were locked up. And then all, all you saw in the pictures was men trying to hide their faces and behind bars and all of that. There were sort of a few years where like, maybe don't go on Grinder. There's like literally a warning that's on there. There are infiltrators who are government actors on these apps. So be careful. But for the most part, as long as it's not super visible, the government doesn't care until there are these moments. I think it is really just about putting citizens' attention somewhere that where they can get easily activated and sort of like stop worrying about how the country is being destroyed by bad governance. And in general, since CC taking over. I mean, Egyptian governance has been draconian for, for decades at this point, but I think definitely post-revolution, there does seem to be an insistence on really establishing the dystopia, like on a daily basis, just because like, I think, I think the government wants to know that like, as a citizen, anything can happen to you. There are a couple of cases right now of like two women who were locked up or are going to be for, for several, for one of them for 10 years, I think, because of videos that they posted on TikTok where nothing happened. Like they're, they're just immoral, whatever that means. And so I think that there is kind of just an emphasis on creating a space where you are just in fear all the time. You don't know what can get you in trouble and what can't, and that's how they want it. This is Khulud. I, I second everything that has been said. And in terms of the Swana region, like everyone said, Swana is Southwest Asia, North Africa which includes Arabs and non-Arabs. So for in honor of, of inclusion, we're talking about Swana and also it, it includes different ethnic ethnicities and dif different religions, different laws. I would like to add about this societal law, not societal laws, but like kind of like conventions. So no matter what the law is, um, what is also damaging is the patriarchal society that is also, of course, influenced by religion, speech, religion, religious hate speech that happen often towards uh, the LGBTQ community in general there. And, you know, post-colonial practices and structures that um, oppress the minorities. I want to say in Lebanon, because I come from Lebanon, the law is like, they say like, Oh, if you have sex against nature, so like, what is nature, right? So recently, very few judges have 
challenge that into saying like, well, what is considered nature and what is not? So there have been few voices even among the judges, and that's that's a big leap <laughs> in in our country. And there are things that happen on regular basis, violations that happen on regular basis among people themselves, right? So I want to say that, for example, there's a guy, there, there were two gay men swimming in the pool in Lebanon, and one of them was touching his boyfriend, just like kind of caressing him or something. And someone was taking a video of them. And, and the other, his boyfriend was like, oh, look, someone's taking a video. And he looked back. And so his face was visible and it went viral and he was kicked out of his job because he's gay. So like, these are things that even like, you know, we're not even talking about crackdowns and prison and law. We're talking about practices that violate human rights for, for queer people. And um, so here from that point, I, I remember, I think what shook me a lot in Sarah Higazi's uh, legacy is the amount of bullying that she faced in her life. And what is heartbreaking is after her death. It's just like unbelievable reading all the comments on social media that that just dehumanizes her while she's away. It's like she she left, you know? And if you want to go back to the Islamic law, it is haram, which is like, it's not okay in Islam to, for example, to um, bash someone if they're dead. So here we want to we want to see also how much religion is and people who are talking about religion that like sheikhs and priests and and people who present the religious authority in community how much they fuel people to bully and dehumanize and other minorities and specifically in this case we're talking about LGBTQ communities while you know, while even some of the basics of religion itself might say, no, I'm not defending now Islam. There's a lot of like question marks about a lot of the things, you know, in, in religious texts, but I'm just highlighting the amount of hate that became kind of like that people are not aware of that became kind of conventional, like, oh, of course, like, like it's out of the question to dehumanize a queer person and to make fun of them. So there's this huge dark, dark lack of awareness that is happening. Yeah. And there was like a big question and divisiveness among people after her death, because usually Muslims say Allah, which means whoever dies, we say, may God have mercy on them. And there is a huge outcry among homophobic people and haters to attack anyone who is saying Allah to attack anyone who is saying may God have mercy on her. And that was really heartbreaking because, wow, you, you know, with all what you've done as a society in terms of enabling this torture and in terms of bullying, you're also now standing in the way of people who love her and who want to honor her and who want to process grief with, you know, with dignity and with integrity and with uh, heart 
And so that was really, really painful to witness and to experience. And this attacks that we got when we say Allah and when we, you know, honor her is just um, many of what she had endured in her life. What we are feeling, the reverberations of, of the hate that a lot of people in that society was bringing is just really maybe 1% of what she had endured. Somewhere it's said that she's like the most bullied lesbian in, in Egypt. So I, th- I think that's true. I think like I resonate with a lot of what Khulud said. I think, you know, we received news of her dying by suicide. As you mentioned, Cheryl, it was like a few days after George Floyd. We were still in the like beginning, very confusing, very scary months of the coronavirus pandemic and the lockdown and social isolation and all of those things. And then hopping on the internet and not only having this news, which I think from talking to other queer Swana folk and from editing this this journal thing and just like reading about people's impressions of the day, there were a lot of us that like saw her with the flag and then were immediately like, she's not gonna be okay. You know, like there was a, there was a moment of like, amazing this is so public visibility like how wonderful and then immediate just like is she going to be okay she's not going to be okay and then to see that play out and then after she has already died she is gone to just like process the incredible amount of hatred towards someone who is already dead who had already been exiled who'd already been tortured who like she'd lost everything and and was still somehow a target like that that felt like my heart was drowning <laughs> when i looked at that you know because i just was like this is this is a level of cruelty that in some ways is un, is unfathomable and on the other hand is entirely fathomable because you have a, a society that is like where it's sort of like ruling factions are very cynically engaged in uplifting these narratives of hatred, of of using and weaponizing them when it makes sense. And then a society that's also being gutted by like being marginalized by being uneducated. Literacy rates in Egypt are estimated at like 60% illiteracy, right? And so like, if you, if you have that being true and you also have people mostly living on or below the poverty line and there is no free uh, press and like talk show hosts are have to be careful about who they bring into their show so that they don't get locked up. You know, like you just, you have sort of this entire, the entire structure is made so that nothing changes and we're all scared all the time and we are at each other's throats for whatever it is like if you're queer if you're christian if you're if you're whatever if you're the wrong kind of muslim right like there's a very very thin narrow way to be in egypt where like you're not going to get in trouble with anyone um and so that felt particularly hopeless just because like I I am someone who I've self-exiled at this point, right? Like there's nothing keeping me from Egypt except knowing how I will be treated on the street, dressing how I want to dress or looking how I want to look. 
And as someone who would be living there if things were a little bit different with my family, that was definitely watching the internet pile on was a moment of me being like, oh, no, I'm not. I don't think I'm going to get to live in Egypt in my lifetime. Like we're, we're really, really far way from what would need to change. Yeah, this is Bassam. In in some ways, it kind of bookended the 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 promise of the what people in Western press call the Arab Spring. You you have this outpouring of young energy of hope that was coming in across the Swana region, whether it was Egypt or Iran or Tunisia or uh, Bahrain or you know, or Morocco or anywhere. All these young people were saying, you know, we we understand what you were talking about. Cheryl, in terms of a, a global vision for being equal participating citizens. And they all took the same actions. They went into the street. They raised all kinds of flags. They they spoke up. And the, the reaction of all of the states to the people rising and the, the encroachment on them bit by bit was, was slow and painful to watch. And then, you know, seeing what happened to Sarah kind of, in some ways, broke us, like you were speaking to. Like, th- this is this is the end of that promise. Now we have to think or imagine our path different than w- what we thought we could when when the mo- when these movements started. This is Ayala. Um, I just want to add that I was there with her a lot of the times where she would have to just deal with all that hate and I just remember like feeling so angry and helpless and like frustrated and just knowing she deserved like so much more than all the ugliness that she would go through on a like I'm sure it was on a daily basis and after she died I remember seeing it continue but also start to filter through to her friends I remember um getting like a big chunk of it myself people even assuming I was speaking up for her because I was queer and I was not, I would like, I just saw her as a human, but that was also just not acceptable to them. I'm not saying this for like sympathy, but as someone who felt a portion of that, I just feel like really heartbroken just thinking about the scope of how bad it was for her. (sighs) For me, like for months, I think around four or five months, I'd be getting hateful messages just about Sarah and like yeah it really made like actually grieving hard because you were always angry always on edge always defensive always just just not giving you a chance to like just sorry Yeah, just not giving you a chance to like process and grieve. It was just, just disgusting. 
I don't have another word for it. This is Cheryl. You know, one of the things that comes to mind, and I see this happen not just in the Swana region, but in Southeast Asia as well, and in other parts, Africa, is the legacy of, of European colonialism and that part of the extremism, right, is almost a reaction to the West. And the fact that, and this is, this is sort of something I'm, I'm still trying to unpack, the fact that Canada took Sarah Higazi as someone seeking asylum, right? I wonder if this dynamic between the West and these other post-colonial cultures that the dynamic itself is a trap, that it actually becomes a cycle of making things even more extreme on on both ends. I've seen it certainly in Southeast Asia where marriage equality, for example, being passed in the United States, I saw an immediate effect in Southeast Asia where things actually became harder for queer people in Southeast Asia. And I'm hearing that something similar is happening in the Swana region. I'm wondering if any of you have thoughts on this? I'm still unpacking it myself. I don't completely understand it yet, but I'm wondering if any of you have thoughts on what this post-colonial dynamic is and how it impacts queer movements outside of the U.S. and Canada. I have a long-ish answer to this and also maybe a, a, a slightly maybe controversial one, but I, I want to like ground what I'm about to say by saying it is so difficult for anyone speaking in English, mostly interacting with like an English speaking audience and all of that to not feel that there's a, a type of like gauntlet just by talking about any of this stuff to like a Western audience, because so many of these narratives are the same narratives that get used against us and somehow are like why the bombs fall to bring us freedom wherever we are, right? So there's a hesitation to speak openly about these things and to like add fuel to that narrative, which is really dehumanizing and essentializes a lot of like the isms in the region, right? Be, like as in we are homophobic, like not because of the same societal factors that are operating here that make some people homophobic, a lot of people extremely homophobic in a Western context. It's like something specific about Islam or like Arabs or like whatever, right? So so the, the kind of like whatever dynamics exist there are essentialized to our culture. And it's like, we're just not, we haven't like progressed enough to move beyond them, right? Rather than suggesting that things are as complicated as you're talking about, Cheryl, where it's like, oh, here is a Western region that is constantly muddling up our own politics and like has has a history of colonialism and and screwing with our legal systems and all of those things and of course there are reactions around that so i want to say all that before i also say and i don't want to center western intervention and to say that this is the entire reason or even a majority of the reason of why we are who we are right like i do think that this idea that like, oh, it was the colonial authorities that first introduced into legislature any sort of controlling of people's sexuality and, and, and like making that kind of a place where there was legality or something where like the state gets to interact with a, with a private function. Sure, that is true. What about our culture made it so that this is lasting? 
You know, like there's been a lot of change. There has been a lot of change since those interventions happened. And we are still kind of like struggling with these issues. And it's not because some British people, when they colonized us however many years ago, changed the law. That's not the only reason. That's not the majority of the reason. It's so much more complicated than that. And I I see a lot of our queer community kind of like latch onto that narrative, a, a part of our reaction formation, right? Because we're being told constantly, like, your culture is homophobic, you're this, you're that, we're progress, we're whatever. And it's like, no, no, these things are like way more complicated than any of, of those things that assume that anything is going to be unidirectional, especially that like legacies of colonialism also didn't look the same everywhere that they played out, right? And so... I both want to leave room for how the like Western hegemony, Western imperialism, Western military and economic intervention and all of those things can have a really uh, horrible effect on our, our societies and how much and how quickly we can change. But I'm not going to center that as the reason because we're people, we're thinking developing intelligent people. And it's there's not going to be like one constitution that is the reason why we are anything, you know? And so I I, I want us as, as a queer community to be able to recognize that history and recognize its place. And then also say, and like, how are we part of this? Like, how are we, how are we, how are we, responsible for this because we're not automatons i am i i'm like so thrilled to hear that <laughs> because you know there's a lot of like debates that happen that i stand in that place and there's there's a tendency where we're either just blaming the you know the regimes back home in the Swana region without recognizing the um, impact of imperialism and colonialism or I see polarization or people are, especially in academic discourses and theoretically speaking, how much colonialism has roots. And I'm like, can we just see it as a balance? Because we are, we are supposed to change and develop laws. And I think recognizing the colonial impact on us and post-colonial structures and imperialism and the interference and the militarization happening alongside with holding those in power accountable for their performance. It is important to, to hold both of these truths because focusing only on one of them, we're just not making any justice for our cause. This is like not a direct answer to the question, but is sort of feels tangential to me. One of my very first disappointments in the Arab Spring came very, very soon after Hosni Mubarak was removed from power. And it was literally days after that there was a women's march happening and those women were sexually assaulted. Those women had an, a counter protest happening around them. And at the time, because there was so much hope and nobody wanted to, to rain on that parade. There was kind of like, these are growing pains. Nobody wanted to actually pay attention to the fact that like here we have had the 
biggest example in our recent history of people coming out and saying freedom for everybody. And then two days later, it's like, not for everybody, actually. None of these moments of protest can go where they need to ultimately without a lot of work addressing just like the misogyny in our societies, the, the patriarchy in our societies, and, and how all of those things are coded into governance. The Egyptian government wants women to know that their bodies are not theirs and that they can be violated at any moment. That was happening in the Arab Spring with the virginity checks that they did in, in Tahrir Square just to see like if you're a protester and you have a vagina, the government now has the right to make sure that you're a virgin because somehow that has something to do with like, can you occupy the space that you're occupying or not? So this is also just part of a, a, a much grander legacy of really showing us, really showing us that you do not belong to yourself if you are someone whose body specifically is assigned female. And if you are a male who lets go of your male privilege by being gay or whatever, the narrative is, right, then you kind of get the same treatment, right? We can do anal retention checks, right, to make sure that you're you're not queer. So, so I think there is also just this very specific relationship of how the government consistently and very deliberately violates the body as a reminder of like, we can do anything at any time. This is Bassam. Cheryl, just going back to your question about the relationship between colonialism, post-colonialism regimes in, in, in the Swana region, they, they definitely are exposed to a certain extent to news information from the West. And there are certain cues that they take as well. It's, it's, not, it's not that people in the region lack agency. They, they definitely have some level of influence on how to run their lives as, as limited as it is. But, but even then, when they do that, they, they tend to, just like Maryam Khalud were talking about, take, take these cues where it is okay for you to violate the sanctity of a human being, of their rights. And in recent examples for that, and this, this didn't happen before, suddenly rainbows are bad, which is, which is kind of basically what happened to, to Sarah specifically. Or new laws are coming up that specifically target trans individuals or cross-dressing that didn't really exist before in, in some of the regions. So the laws, for example, banning cross-dressing and, and excluding trans people from work in places like Kuwait did not exist until literally, you know, five or six years ago. Suddenly this, this awareness of, of trans individuals that have always existed, that have always had jobs, have always had the ability to kind of speak, so, suddenly they're saying, oh, this is, this is something that we're going to have to combat after having some awareness of it, not because it, it didn't exist in society and people didn't talk about it or it wasn't represented in the media or it wasn't discussed, but, you know, they suddenly felt like they had permission now to attack this community and go after it and go after its symbols and it, it's their ability to be able to speak up. And Sarah was, was certainly caught up in, in that dynamic. One of the fears I've had prior to this podcast episode was, and I don't want to project my own story onto all of you, my immigration process here and the way that I've been an activist, it became weaponized where I was seen by some people back in the homeland as one someone who was betraying Singaporean culture, was using something from the West 
became puppet for Western culture and in some ways making things worse for my own country and people who are who were LGBTQIA plus back home at some point also told me like, hey, actually, you're beginning to be seen as a, a symbol of Western culture being brought here. And so I was sort of placed in this really strange position as an immigrant here. And I don't want to project my own story on all of you, but I want listeners to not reduce the story to that. I'm, I'm being really clear here that these are people who are multidimensional. They are not puppets for the West. And I'm hoping that the audience actually gets more of a nuanced and complex understanding of who these activists are. So I, I don't know if you have a response to that, but I'll leave that open. This is Miriam. I think one response that I have to it pretty immediately is that like people who are local to the Swana region, who have never left, who are have always been doing like grassroots organizing around that are being accused of the same thing, right? And so it's like kind of a, this easy monster to pull out of like and and turning it into something about like western hegemony which i don't want to dismiss as a concern i was having this conversation with a, with a friend of mine who's also queer and from the swana region and they were saying that one way that probably lgbtq i plus rights would have some kind of renaissance is if a lot of Western organizations connected their aid to some kind of guarantee, which is not a reality that either of us wanted because we're like, no, we're already being kind of like, it's not the answer. Like, even if it's sort of like a short term, one kind of solution, it's not an answer to all the really horrendous global political dynamics that have us exactly in this position where we where we can have this conversation where like just asking for a specific people's liberation is somehow you're just like caught up in all of this other shit right that is not what the issue is about but then we're distracted by it because it is important because yes there, there is so much that happens as a as a result of the positions the West takes and how it like intervenes in our home countries. But the first thing that I want to say is you don't have to leave for that accusation to be hurled at you. I had mentioned Al-Qaus, which is an organization doing this kind of advocacy work in Palestine. And recently, one of the people who who work for Al-Qaus, Ghadir Shafi'i, went on a local like Arabic language program where that was exactly what was being hurled at her of like, A, you're inventing queerness that it has always existed somewhere else and you're bringing it here, which is erases our history as queer people who have always been everywhere. And then also cr creates this, this scarecrow of Western intervention. Western inter intervention is happening whether we <laughs> are out here talking about queer liberation or not. So we need to have a nuanced understanding, of course, and not be inadvertently recruited into like native informancy, which is a thing that can happen rather easily. Um, but I don't think that it's anything that's actually unique to folks who are working from diasporic settings. I think it's just kind of like an easy thing to be able to say. And it elides our history, right? Like queerness isn't Western, queerness is everywhere. And we have had local examples of it for as long as we have been people. And that kind of argument 
really just like collapses and simplifies everything to a degree that that like borders on the ridiculous. It's Hulud. Another point is that we're on an intersection, so it's impossible to, for us to be accused when we are actually condemning also the imperialism and the American policy in our countries and we're condemning Israel and occupation and oppression and ethnic cleansing. So I don't I don't know that this accusation would, would look right for, for anyone. And and a deep recognition that the master's tools are not going to dismantle the house, right? Not, not many of the queer organizers that I know are trying to get Western intervention to give us anything, right? We're actually, we're working towards liberation within our people, among our family, among our friends. That's actually who we need to change for our lives to be possible and joyful and ecstatic and all of those things. And it's not like, you know, whatever using Western intervention as a tool would even look like, right? I don't have a phone, I don't have a phone where I can like <laughs> dial into like Western intervention Inc and be like, excuse me, can you do something about this? But I, I think Mariam that also like, I, I think Western like lobbying also would be helpful because what, what is the West doing in our countries is huge and damaging. So if we are lobbying to pressure this damage to stop and to, you know, for, for things to change, that's also not an intervention. That's an intervention for a corrective path, I think. And it's not going to be just about queer rights. An intervention or a lobby, lobbying to stop the, the violence and to stop the imperialism. I think the big question for me all these years, this cycle is highly nuanced, too complex but becomes polarized. And I've always wondered if these countries, these cultures being sovereign need to come up with their own version of the movement. In Singapore, you know, the rainbow flag was too sort of controversial and never took off for many reasons, right? 377 was, is, is a law that was left by the British. It continues to be criminalized. So Singaporeans only have a limited space to be able to speak freely, and it's on this hill, and it's round. So what they decided to do was to create a pink dot that became symbolic for that specific country and culture versus the rainbow flag. And I think that actually propelled the movement further. The government also didn't allow any foreign money going into this movement. So everything in this movement is only Singaporean. And I think that actually made a difference for that particular movement. So I've always wondered if, you know, these countries and these movements need to come up with something that is truly sovereign and, and unique to who they are. Because I do think that the Western question makes it so much harder. It's just sort of a thought that I'm still unpacking and have been unpacking all these years. My, my big question is, as far as Sarah Hagazi, her legacy, for all of you, what do you think are sort of the, the most significant pieces of her activism that you're currently still holding on to and will take away and continue to advocate for? This is... Miriam. First, Cheryl, towards your your first point, I, I do think that having local versions of movements obviously 
is the ideal situation because you want the people living in that region to be dictating what their goals and priorities are and not to be swept in by, I guess, what Joseph Massad, who I agree, disagree with on a lot of things, but he, he calls the gay international. What I want to mention is that there are examples of this local organizing in the ways that it can exist safely. I want to give the example of Al-Qaus in Palestine that is doing a lot of queer advocacy. And because they live in Palestine, a lot of that also looks like anti-Zionist organizing, right? The truth of those people's lives, you can't address how queer people get treated without addressing the occupation. And so that's an example of an organic grassroots movement that is addressing not just queerness, but the the, the larger Venn diagram of like what that oppression looks like and and complicating therefore the narrative of also like um you know like the pinkwashing of western governance generally even as it like pulverizes a a, a state and a people in terms of sarah what stays with me f- with her is i have a little bit of an of an awareness how her story has already been romanticized by all of us her queer advocacy work is often is the thing she's most famous for right now. Even though she was a communist, she like organized for the working classes. She did a lot of, of activism that was not necessarily just about queerness, right? And so she was intersectional in her outlook and in in how she was doing her work. And then also this, maybe a tendency for us to like, you know, we love our martyrs, <laughs> you know? Not we like Arabs. I mean, like a martyr story is sexy for all the reasons that we're cultured to um, appreciate that kind of narrative. One thing that I've been aware of is how fetishized one of her last phrases has been of like, but I forgive, but I forgive. I see it everywhere. You know, that's a lot around the stories that we like to tell, not the broad scope of Sarah's life. I don't think you would look at Sarah's life and and say that the takeaway there is to forgive <laughs> necessarily, you know, not that any of us actually have have the right to be translating what a major takeaway from someone's entire life is, but but just the way that we can turn people into symbols and just elide a lot of detail, including the fact that there's a lot of people who lifted that flag who are now exiled, who are asylees somewhere else who just didn't die by suicide. And we're not talking about them. We don't know what their names are. We don't know where they are. We don't know what they're going through now, how they might need support so that whatever they have gone through to engage in this moment so that they can work through it and have the help that Sarah didn't end up having because of asylum and a coronavirus and quarantine and untreated PTSD and, and, and all of those things. And so trying to understand how her life contributes to the movement and all of that. And then also really remembering that she was a whole person and to not turn her into a flag of any kind, because I think she deserves more than that from everybody. And especially, I think, from the queer community. Just to follow on this, I, I do want to make make sure that we don't canonize Sarah and just strip her away from everything that made her a full human being and just kind of reduce it to a single event or a, 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 a single cause that ended up causing her to take her life. That, that It certainly was a huge impact on her. And what we tried to do in our discussion is 
to dissect all of the things that have happened in the society that that caused what happened to Sarah. I think we try to take a look at a, a lot of root causes. We do invoke Sarah's memory, but not not just in one context. We start kind of talking about what was going on with society and the media that ended up pushing her, the, the lack of support when she did arrive, the fact that there, there's a lot of hands and people that could have done something to help somebody like Sarah, whether it's creating support networks for people who are refugees, exiles, and asylees in Western societies, or starting with making sure that simple things related to the respect of human human being, human rights, and human bodies are actually happening in, in our region. What, what we take away is not a, a single act or a single legacy, but the fact that we, we need to think about this as a whole. We, we are intersectional people, just like Sarah was. She wasn't focused on a single issue. She cared about workers' rights. She cared about people of all classes. She cared about people in different religions and ethnicities and minorities. And she continued to embody that in everything that she was doing. It wasn't just about her. It's about the world that she was occupying and the entire society that she was in. And she tried to make an impact wherever she was. And I and I think that's the way that I walk away from it is not not just to focus on one thing. Absolutely queer rights. Absolutely. We need to think about how to uh, make an impact in our society, have dialogue and uh, and messaging, but but not to forget about the fact that there's a lot of injustice in this world that that we need to make an impact on. I don't know her in person, but I'm very impacted by by what she had left. And I think what I take personally in my own life is the shift that happened in me after Sarah's death. Before that, I I wasn't involved in activism as much i you know i always supported equity and you know diversity but not in this sense after sarah's death and how much it shook me and how much i was touched personally and on professional level because as a psychotherapist here i work with arab and swana lgbtq people in the diaspora and when i heard about sarah's what what she went through it just, you know, brought up all the work that the professional work, the support, the mental health issues that come from domestic violence, that come from exclusion, that come from bullying, abuse. I was shaken on both levels, personally and professionally. I just felt the, the pain really deeply from one person who is Sarah to, to the whole LGBTQ community. And... I just extended my heart and I just felt an expansion and I felt the need to be in a place where I speak up about myself and I speak up for whoever I can speak up for. And, and so since then, I, I feel much more involved and I called for action and we created a group, an Arab career group, where it's mainly about healing and social justice. So I'm walking away with much more open heart, I can say much more awareness, much more of the desire for need to change and and be proactive in social change and political change. This is Ala. I feel because before I was able to see her in her day-to-day -day life, I'm also aware of the more 
mundane or daily challenges that she faced because of everything she went through. She had really intense PTSD from after being imprisoned and exiled and that just really affected her also in her like just day-to-day life, finding work, finding a therapist who can actually help her, mental health, just a place where she could feel safe in. She had a lot of triggers that people just couldn't accommodate. And yeah, I do feel like she was brought to Canada, but then abandoned. And the memorial on her anniversary, I was very insistent that a couple I know, which was having a lot of, obviously like without the imprisonment or torture, but like having a lot of the other hardships, just talk about that. I don't want another Sarah to like, at least deal with what she dealt with here is just being abandoned and not supported. Also, having the privilege to know her in person, there's a lot of lessons or qualities she taught me. She had, I would like hear stories from mutual friends. Like when she would first be introducing herself to someone, she would say, hi, my name is Sarah Hagazi and I am a communist. <laughs> and just having that sort of openness. And I, I know that, that sounds cheesy, but like she was just, that pure and trusting and she also gave a lot to all these different causes that you were talking about like intersectionality one of the like things that really stick with me is she did a hunger strike with me for four days even though like I said she had a lot of both mental and physical challenges that it was just hard on her but she was stubborn And the most fascinating thing about that is it wasn't even about Egypt. It was about something unrelated, but that's just how much she would give of herself to just other people. I do feel privileged because also I feel I couldn't have survived what she survived for so long. So I just, yeah, like feel privileged that I even got to meet her. This is Bassam. We didn't know Sarah firsthand. We were affected by the story or the impression that we're reading in the media about her. And, you know, we we could see in the pictures this this life and and this strength coming through her eyes in, in the small body that she had in the pictures that are always dis- displayed about her. And it, it it's really great to hear the fact that you know, it, it wasn't just our impression. She was a strong person. She she was standing for herself. She was speaking out for herself and for other people. And it 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 really it, it really helps us to hear that about her and to think about her in in a different light as well. So just want to say thank you for for sharing that nugget about her life with us. I know that she was exiled to Canada in 2017, and she passed in 2020 so that's three years of her life and so I'm, I'm imagining she got out of the the prison setting in 2017 i i don't think i ever understood how long she was in prison for three months. and three months and i think within that time period what she reported was being like tortured um 
electrocuted, sexually assaulted, and also sp spent nine days in solitary confinement. That's what I understand of the of the prison experience. And then that that she came out of it pretty immediately traumatized and had a lot of symptoms of PTSD that she talked about often, which I can mention more or less specifically, but yeah, just three months. I believe she didn't arrive to Canada till January, 2018. So, so in those two years after going through what she did, she was experiencing these traumatic symptoms from that experience of, of imprisonment and, and torture my i guess i'm struck by how in the midst of experiencing ptsd and having moved countries under those circumstances right must have been really really hard but i'm hearing that she jumped right into more activism and started caring for people in canada and and continued to organize and protest and so something about that really is striking for me because I'm imagining she continued her activism despite all of that. There was a, there was post-trauma as, as symptoms, but there was also this growth or something that that continued to push her forward. And I'm wondering if knowing you you knowing her, do you have a sense as to how she how she you know what what drove her to even more activism in Canada because that's that's pretty amazing to me. I feel that's just who she was, and she would just like I said like the fact that she went did a hunger strike hunger strike for four days with all her various condition uh, conditions and issues just shows me how much she would just always be giving to others even though she probably would have like next to nothing in the tank you know i would see her literally everywhere black lives matter sex workers migrant right climate justice homeless encampments just she would be everywhere and i remember when she died we had a a vigil in a park and i was just blown away by the fact that she had just been in the activist scene for two years. There were hundreds of people who showed up for her because that was just how much uh, of herself she gave to causes and just the impact she had. I can't speak to exactly what kept her going. That <laughs> still confuses me. <laughs> like, she was just a machine. I, like, I remember... Any rally I decided to go to, she would be there, and she would be, and she would be at rallies that I like never even heard about, and I would just be mind blown by how prolific she could be. I do feel she was compelled in a way to raise awareness. I'm guessing here that's probably what drove her to be so intersectional. But yeah, I really can't fathom how someone like how someone who went through that can have that much energy. I don't want to be throwing assumptions. This is Khulud. But it just feels to me, and that's my own feeling, that, you know, she was ripped off from her home, from her community, and that her identity of being expelled and having to go through all what she had to go, unfortunately, it is part. it became part of her identity and part of her home that 
you know, when, when you go through a lot of pain because of, of something, then this becomes part of your identity and this becomes part of your expression. When I see her in the streets of Canada and the pictures, it just feels like she's at home. I don't, I don't want to, you know, throw assumptions, but this is how I see it. I just want to rec like I, I want to acknowledge and recognize the pain that asylum seekers go through, especially you plus asylum seekers that seek asylum for safety, but then they arrive here and they don't find home. Leaving home behind, and some people in the Swana region think that like, well, yeah, LGBTQ people can go somewhere else and have their lives. This is not in our tradition. They don't have to do this here, right? But we, we are part of our country. We are part of our society. We are part of our community. And it is not anyone's business to kick people out because, oh, they can, you know, practice their freedom out there. When people come here, there's maybe people are in touch with sexual freedom, with gender identity freedom, presenting themselves how they want to present. But that's not all freedom. Freedom is to be in the community that you want to be in. That's what's freedom. Freedom is to enjoy and have the power to choose the space that you want to be. And refugees and asylum seekers are not experiencing that. Maybe they're experiencing part of freedom, but not freedom wholly and fully. And, and I really hope that our societies are going to start seeing that. I want to speak as... As a psychotherapist who sees people who are also asylum seekers, I want to speak to this pain because it's very, very, very invisible and people don't know about it. Asylum seekers' resources are like almost zero here in the United States. Even refugees have a little bit more resources, but asylum seekers none. And they can't work for long periods of time. They, you know, they, they can't have money. And a lot of the times, since they are seeking asylum, they don't have family ties that can support them or that can help them financially, at least. So what happens also is arriving here to racism and to anti-immigrant laws and to prejudice and to cultural incompetency. And... And above all of that, asylum seekers would go through a very meticulous process of digging in their own trauma because they have to write every single thing from A to Z that happened to them. And this includes all the traumas because the officer needs to make sure that they're not lying, right? And then after writing this whole file, which we work in therapy about, because this is triggering and resurfaces the trauma over and over again. So, you know, here as a psychotherapist, we're sitting in the room like, oh, shall we do this intervention now? Or shall we do it after finishing the file? Oh, no, maybe we should do it after the interview with the officer. So, like, the mental health process becomes intertwined with, with these politics. And in that, in that sense, it is so important to affirm 
social justice as part of, of, I mean, mental health as part of social justice. And that they can't be separated and that our boundaries as psychotherapists are so different. When I see someone who's American versus when I see someone who's Arab versus when I see someone who's an Arab LGBTQ individual versus when I see an Arab or Swana LGBTQ asylum seeker, all of these, we as psychotherapists need to take into consideration how our boundaries are and how our therapeutic process is is happening and how communication, therapeutic communication is being navigated in the room. And there's no way we're abiding to the white psychotherapy ways of doing things because it just doesn't apply and it doesn't accommodate to all the clients. So for people who are seeking asylum, they have to go through a very thorough process about their trauma and writing it down and also go to the officer and make an interview and have the immense fear of not being believed and also have this complexity. Oh, so now I have to expose my trauma and do trauma porn so that I am legit to stay here so that it's a transaction so that it's legit that I have a safe space for myself. And I want to say that the collective trauma that we go through back home, not only the trauma of being queer, but the trauma of just being in a place that is so politically unstable or militarized or colonized, the amount of collective trauma happening there when we come here as individuals, this collective trauma does not find space for itself. And collective trauma is healed through collective healing and collective resiliency. So when we are separated from our home and from the community that also had this kind of trauma, it's really hard to heal on your own a big collective trauma that other people are involved. You need the roots of this tree. So imagine it, a tree that is intertwined with in its roots with, with other trees and then it's transplanted and then for it to heal, there needs to be a specific soil. Otherwise, it takes ages. And PTSD is exacerbated by isolation. And so it is a really big burden for people who have collective trauma to transform it into an individual trauma and to have to deal with them themselves. It's not supportive not to have community. And that's why I, I put a lot of value for community building and community healing and community resiliency, because this is where collective trauma can be healed. It can be healed on its own. It's not magic. As, a, as an immigrant and somebody who has relatives and friends who are going through the asylum process, it, it just kind of struck me how, how different our experiences are. We, immigrants do not necessarily have the same appreciation of the fact that people who come here as asylum seekers uh, or refugees have a completely different experience with the systems that they have to endure and what they have, just like Khalud said, share of themselves, witnessing firsthand how they they kind of have, have to live and relive and find ways to articulate their experiences just to kind of be accepted and have the same opportunities that we did in being able to come here and and certainly we just don't have the appreciation skill or knowledge to be able to 
to know how to deal with it. I, I really think, like Hulud was saying, there there definitely needs to be a more information put out there for the entire community, for all of our communities, to understand how to do it. I heard of people who wake up, you know, with nightmares every day. I'm not sure we we necessarily would have the skills or knowledge on how to deal with something like that or how to recognize PTSD or understand how to to build the support even with the best of intentions to be able to help individuals be able to survive this let alone just kind of get through it just just survive it you you're asking about kind of the things that we take away from Sarah's story Sarah's legacy all, all of that informs how we think about it now. I, I certainly see it completely differently than I I did before. This is Miriam. I think also some of some of what was happening in my head after hearing about her dying by suicide, one of the, the stages of grief is like bargaining. And I, I feel like I went sort of immediately into that type of thinking, just knowing some details about her life. What if, like, what if it hadn't been the pandemic like what if if like whatever community she did have by that time had been more accessible to her what if she had had uh competent mental health support what if her mother hadn't passed away after she was exiled and she couldn't go back for the funeral or like to see her last surviving parent her father had had, had passed away a long time ago and sarah was like one of the primary caretakers of all of her siblings. It's not just torture, electrocution, PTSD, memory loss, forgetting who you are, not being able to speak the language that you're most comfortable in. Sara was a writer who wrote in Arabic. What of that was left for her once she was living in the West? What I find myself tending over and over and over to do is just making this big long list of all the losses that one doesn't think about necessarily from just like a political asylum story, knowing that it's a hundred layers deep and not restricted to any one part of, of her life. Well, now that we know that this is a thing that has happened, that does happen, that, that could and will happen again, what can we do as a queer Swana community that is either living where we were born or who are in diaspora, what is possible for us to create so that folks escaping a less safe situation and needing to settle ha have more at their fingertips, whether that's like community or money or housing or language support or what, whatever it is, mental health professionals who are culturally competent, you know, all of that. And I don't necessarily have an answer because I can't like imagine the amount of organizing that it would need for there to be ports for people to come into. That's what I want after all of this is just recognizing the real need because suicide is not an inevitable conclusion. Suicide is the result of a mental health crisis plus a lot of other things happening. So what can we do to have some support, at least for the crisis part of it? How do we begin organizing around that? And how do we become visible and accessible to people who are seeking asylum or who are self-exiled without the asylum bit where it's that structured, that enmeshed with governance and, and legal, whatever. And I don't have an answer for that. Like I don't, I, it's what I want to happen. I don't know how to make it happen. I don't know if it's, starting to happen if every one of us is speaking up if every one of us is recruiting their own skills and potential into this 
cause with all the uprising and vocalizing and speaking up and the visibility that we're trying to make starting from oneself whatever potential i i can see some movements towards some more liberation is taking place. I notice also LGBTQ community is always talked about with a third pronoun and more so in the Swana region in Arabic language, people are starting to say, I, me as a queer person, this is what I want. This is what I need. So the visibility, because there's a lot of dehumanizing happening and othering. And so to have a person speaking up is is very powerful and i'm starting to see more of that and hear more of that i'm also talking about more practically if an asylum seeker lands in new york tomorrow mm -hmm. like there are enough of us that they sh there should be a place where they could be housed with somebody who can speak their language, who understands a little bit about what they're going through. There should be a fund where they can access funds for mental health support. There should be a network of queer SWANA therapists who are culturally competent that they can reach out to that are subsidized. There are all these ways that the community can engage in a grassroots way to just make something available. What happened to Sarah was not just marginalization, violence at the hands of an entire state, but just actually that she didn't have the thing that she needed when she needed it. Even though she was someone who was up to that point, very public about the fact that she was experiencing PTSD, these mental health crises, that she wasn't well, she wasn't doing well, and we all knew about it before she passed away. And so what can be available. And some of those organizations will explicitly say, we'll help you up until you kind of get in. But but once you're here, you're on your own. Our organization doesn't support you anymore. It's going to be for somebody else to do that. And let's speak also to how much mental health is being overlooked by organizations that help refugees and asylum seekers here. There's yeah. little support for mental health and for how, for support for people to acculturate in a way that is appropriate and healthy for them. And I, I do think that some of that is part is caused by the narrative of being a refugee or an asylum seeker. Your problems are solved once you, you're in the country and now you're the land of freedom of opportunity is gonna like make your whole life happen for you, which is just simply actually not like the US is one of the worst places to be if you have no kind of any social security net or yeah, safety net. The kind of support that I know here for refugees in some organizations, oh, you're arriving to the Bay Area, great, let's learn English, let me show you an hour of orientation about the culture. And the third thing would be like, I offered you a job like to be a driver or something, and that's it. <laughs> All your your problems are solved. I remember thinking a lot of the same things when you mentioned bargaining, but for me, I just accepted that she died of course she did just thinking about everything she went through i jumped immediately to the last step and i just accepted it and it just popped into my head when they said that over the years when i've done advocacy or activism around mental health and lgbtqia plus services and, and all of those things i often say that there are culturally sanctioned murders and there are also culturally sanctioned suicides. And I think it, that in the case of Sarah Hegazi, it, it couldn't be more apparent to me that, that such a prominent activist, while it was not a situation where the entire system caused the murder, 
it did cause a suicide. This global system had something to do with that. I think I'm right behind you. I think there are so many more things we can do for asylum seekers, especially LGBTQIA plus asylum seekers that really have specific mental health needs and not just culturally competent needs, but also LGBTQIA plus informed therapists who can really serve their needs and, and really understand. Sarah, for, for some reason, didn't get the help that she needed. And I know that bo all of you are saying that more could have been done. I wonder if from here on, I look at your petition that you're putting out for signatures, and I wonder if you can run through some of the key pieces of this petition. What are some of the key pieces that's important for listeners to understand about this petition you've put out? So it's it's more of an open letter. And uh, I think when, when Sarah died, there was an, an immense need to speak up. There are decades of pain that needed to come out from the throat and speak it up to say this is not fair, to say we deserve liberation, we deserve to live freely, we deserve to have our own voice. So this open letter came out of the belief that social justice can't happen unless if we're healing and if we're healed. So when we are healed, we're, we're flowing this out to the world. So the open letter basically portrays our Swana queer voice. And I don't want to say that it represents all Swana queer people. This is a group of six people. We're di diverse. And maybe some Swana queer folks agree with the open letter, maybe not. So just recognizing the diversity. This letter is written to, to express our grief about Sarah's legacy and the celebration of her legacy as well, and to call for action and accountability, as well as to recognize the condemnations that uh, we have towards re extremist religion, extremist religious authorities that instigate hate speech, condemning regimes and democratic Arab governments that target through different ways, including state media, including, you know, direct and indirect um, targeting crackdowns from crackdowns to very little social interactions down the street that is based on bullying and dehumanizing. So to condemning all of that and to recognize the uh, colonial roots and to take a stance against pinkwashing and with our Palestinian queer siblings and to address some of the parties that we can talk to. In the call to action, there were different paragraphs. One was for religious authorities to stop fueling people and to allow for space to have more progressive interpretations of Islamic texts to, to thrive. There's another piece for even mental health specialists to reject conversion therapy and to consider 
and recognize a lot of the international bodies that talk to homosexuality as a natural aspect in diversity and to gender identity as well as a natural aspect of diversity. We talk to allies in the Swana region to be more vocal because there's a lot of allies that are silent because if you speak about it, then you are accused of being also uh, from the LGBTQ community and therefore allies tend to not speak about it, not share rainbow flags, not talk about the human rights violations that happen. We talk to uh, call to action for human rights organization, organizations in the Swana region so that they include the LGBTQ rights as part of, of their movement and not to leave anyone behind. We also spoke families of LGBTQ people who are from Swana region there and in the diaspora to accept their children and to shift their awareness inwards towards accepting and celebrating their children. And we also recognize that rejection is very damaging, it brings a lot of the individuals of our community to alienation, to homelessness, to higher risk of mental health issues, to suicidality. So there's a lot of parts where we speak. We also speak to the media there to stop dehumanizing LGBTQ people and portraying them just to like have higher rates of viewers. And also we speak to the media internationally to recognize our diversity and stop projecting on us this reductionist narrative that describes us homophobic Arab world. We also recognize in our letter the narratives also that the imperialist narrative that portrays us homophobic Middle East and uh, the refugees, that this is the enlightened West where like people, where they are saving queer lives. However, they are just overlooking the struggles that queer lives are having here. We're calling for people to sign it, not as in like it's a petition, but it's more of like an act of solidarity to raise uh, this voice. It's a beautiful kind of interaction across the globe to tell people that we're speaking up, we're here, that's our voice, and to, for others to have the opportunity to say, yes, I hear you by signing this letter. Cultural relativism is not an excuse for hatred and dehumanization. In reading the open letter that these four activists, along with two others, wrote, I had a deeper understanding of a human being who was failed by multiple transnational systems and structures. Alongside the pandemic of COVID-19 was also and has been a global mental health crisis. And for so many asylum seekers in the West, therapists don't necessarily have the training or cultural competencies to meet their needs. Sarah Higazi's legacy left a significant mark on the international LGBTQIA community. 
and it is with heart that I say that her legacy is more than her death. She was a pure example of the intersectional consciousness and activism I have seen around the world. To the Swana queer listener who grieves for the loss of Sarah Higazi, my deepest condolences and love to you. Thank you for listening to the Global Citizenship and Equity Podcast. If you liked this episode, please visit us at www.leadingwithconsciousness.com or subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.